Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. Coming fans. Yeah, precisely. I'm sorry, that you were going to do what? Just um, refer to him as Euro Baldrick. Who is Euro Baldrick? You have to explain what's happening. Oh, Baldrick is a character. Your own Yeah. Is Euro Baldrick. Your own Well, this is called JD. And by the way, I should warn you, this is going to be the opening bit before we segue into the actual podcast. What's going to be the opening bit? Euro Baldrick, JD, and then it's, the music will start now. All right, this is another edition of Alpha Chat, the infrequently but recently more frequently updated podcast from FT Alphaville. I'm Cardiff Garcia in New York, joined by my colleague Joseph Cottrell, also in New York. Hey, Joseph. Hi there. And David is uh, basically captaining the ship over in London in the studio. David, what's up, man? Hey, all tech complaints this way. So we're talking about Cyprus, of course. Uh, to send our readers into the Easter holiday. Then we're going to talk a little bit about the Fed, and Joseph is going to give us a little bit of a teaser on what's happening next week in Argentina and the Pari Passu case. Um, but in terms of Cyprus, actually, just a few minutes ago, the, the exact kind of parameters around um, capital controls were reported. Um, so this is coming from Matina Stevis in the Wall Street Journal. It looks like people won't be able to take more than 3,000 euros out of the country in either euros or an equivalent currency. Credit card transactions are capped at 5,000. People will be able to pay with bank checks, but they won't be able to cash them. And I think there's a few things uh, still left to be worked out around time deposits. But anyways, it's it's expected that these are going to last a week and then be reviewed. How long do you reckon it's going to last? Well, they're probably going to last a lot longer now, aren't they? A rolling seven days, is that the end? A rolling seven up. days into a permanent seven years. Look. Joseph, what, what do you think about this? I mean, is this, is this something that's both necessary and... Really, is... It's kind of like in your post, Cardiff, uh, from Wednesday, uh, when you said every capital control regime is kind of different and solves its own kind of problems, or they try to solve their own problems. So, like, some... Most capital controls kind of deal with like foreign exchange problems. This is the like, Iceland comparison. Uh, yeah, whereas Cyprus is, it is actually unique. Like everyone's called Cyprus unique, but they they are in a currency union, but they have to do capital controls because their two biggest banks are on the brink, and liquidity could leave them at any moment. So in that sense, it's kind of. It should be temporary because you just need to close down those banks and then after that point, everything should be okay. Whether that's actually going to be a smooth process, I don't know. Yeah, I would, I would have to predict that this is, this is going to be not just, certainly not just one week and probably not just a matter of weeks, but at the very least, a matter of months. Um, it's, also, it's also important to, to emphasize that Cyprus is unique in the sense that it's been sort of acting as this conduit haven for Russian money for all this time, essentially recycling Russian money. The other instances where capital or capital controls on outflows were introduced were a little bit different, 
One was Iceland, obviously, that's the most recent version. Um, and before that, there were, I think, a couple of examples in the 90s and early 2000s. And what I wrote about was that really there's only one instance where it was kind of uncontroversially successful, and even then it was a mild success, and it was accompanied by a lot of other macroprudential policies. And that was Malaysia in the late 90s. But Malaysia kind of followed the pattern of what I guess you would call back then a traditional uh, capital inflows-induced financial crisis, where you had a creditor country sending all this money to a developing country. Um, it was usually in the form of short-term debt. It was foreign currency denominated. Uh, and when the downturn hit or the speculators attacked, businesses had trouble paying them off, which led to a currency crisis, which led to a banking crisis, which led to a bigger currency crisis, and so on and so forth. Um, Cyprus is a little bit different, and there really isn't um, a precedent that's all that close to this particular situation. And so I, I don't really know, you know, to what extent previous examples inform the situation in crisis or to what extent even Cyprus will inform other instances of, of capital control. So I have broader thoughts on capital controls generally, but I guess we should stay in Cyprus for the time being. Um, Joseph, do you want to just give us your broader thoughts on, on all that's happened this week? In other words, the, the change from not insuring depositors under uh, 100,000 euros to um, insuring them, but wiping out everybody else, winding down Laiki and, and all that. I mean, do, do you want to just give us your sort of general thoughts on what just happened? Yeah, well, we kind of have to get on to Mr. Unpronounceable, the Eurogroup chair, who I work Dieselboom? <laughs> Dieselboom. Yeah. Your own Dieselboom. I hope I pronounced that right. Probably haven't. Lisa, Lisa goes uh, for Dieselboom. It's, kind of, it's, it's really funny, because everyone's kind of attacking him now for kind of telling the truth about Baden regimes, and this is how we have to go forward in terms of fixing banks from now on. No one's actually picking him up on the fact that he's been really incompetent in the last week because they allowed Cyprus to go through with that first deal to like, kind of attack uh, insured deposits which was a disaster really and it's going to be a disaster from now on because everyone will be kind of scared and whatever uh, no one's kind of hitting him really for having been stupid enough to allow that deal to go through and w when they un rolled out this second deal, which kind of winds up the banks and, as you said, hits the uninsured massively, uh, he didn't say sorry. None of them said, you know, whoops, we kind of made a mistake here. We shouldn't have allowed Cyprus to kind of go forward with that plan. They just said, oh, well, you know, this is a great plan. Uh, we, we wish we'd done it earlier. Well, th that makes no sense. Well, why, why did you come out with the first plan? So that's kind of my thoughts there. It's really kind of white-hot vengeance against the, the idiots who kind of allowed the first plan to kind of go through. And his, his excuse, I guess, I guess uh, in the aftermath of, of what's happened in the last couple of weeks is that that was always on the Cypriots, that the Eurogroup didn't really care, that the finance ministers didn't really care how Cyprus dealt with it. It was a big, I yeah, think, but I think in your that, phrasing, it was a big yours. That doesn't make sense because it, like, they... So the Cypriot president comes to you and he says, look, I'm going to have real trouble getting a deal through uh, in terms of the amount of deposits you want me to get. Uh, so I'm going to go to the, like, the small guy, the inshore deposits as well. And at that point, the ECB or the Eurogroup or someone, some adult in the room should have said, we're not going to let you do that because that's going to lead to a bank run on every single institution you have on that island. And that's going to increase our exposure to you, either if we're the, cent the European Central Bank and we, or we have kind of you know, liquidity exposure to your banks, 
or it will be us through the Eurogroup, because eventually we'll have to make more official loans to you, uh, you are basically asking us to kind of backstop you in doing that really stupid plan. Therefore, we won't allow you to do it. No one actually said that. They just said, fine, go ahead. We're only going to give you 10 billion anyway. You have to find the rest somehow. That was yeah. a really negligent way to do stuff. Yeah. Um... And also, and also that it, was, it was against EU law. By the, the, the new plan that they've come out with said, oh, we're going to guarantee inshore deposits in accordance with EU law. Well, a week ago, they were all merrily briefing journalists that uh, the deposit levy didn't hurt the um, insurance guarantee on the 100,000 euros because it's a tax, it's not a haircut. Uh, so they were quite happy a week ago to kind of, you know, push this through a legal loophole. Yeah. Again, Notably absent in last week's statement was the phrase, in breach of EU law. It wasn't yeah. there. <laughs> but it was. They, 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 they've now effectively admitted that it was in breach because they, yeah. they had to change it. So, yeah, those are my two cents, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that, and that's that's to also, I guess, uh, which which would be a natural segue into some of the the dubious legality, or I guess the dubious legal and and logistical issues um, around capital controls themselves, which David, I think you've you've written quite a lot about. Um, it seems to me like that the legal issues are not insurmountable. Um, looking at EU treaties, I mean, is that is that right? It's 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 not much to say really. I mean, the the treaty of the functioning of the European Union or, or whatever it's called allows for this kind of thing in exceptional circumstances. Um, so the idea that capital controls exist in a currency union. They can. Um, are they absurd logically? Yes. I mean, it's that simple. It's kind of exactly what you said earlier about capital controls. They, they fit certain situations, and each situation is different, and they have to be allowed for legally, and they are. Yeah, I guess what's what's difficult uh, in the case of Cyprus in particular uh, is that they may very well be necessary for all the reasons that Joseph said earlier. I mean, facing the immediate collapse of um, the country's largest economic sector, um, but at the same time, as John Dizard wrote over the weekend, this, this creates a tremendous incentive uh, for Cypriots to try to get around the rules by, you know, selling their stuff abroad or just, you know, finding some other way to, to circumvent the rules. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's really difficult. It does make a mockery of the idea of a currency union, and yet they probably have to do it. Yeah, and Joseph, the, the news on this side of the Atlantic was also that um, Paul Krugman has now essentially said that it's easy to understand why the EU or the Eurozone wouldn't want Cyprus to leave, but if you're a Cypriot citizen, uh, leaving the EU might make a certain amount of, or leaving the Euro might make a certain amount of sense at this point. Uh, the funny part of that post where he was kind of thinking, well, what industries would Cyprus have if it was outside the Euro? And the guy said, farming. I think, which uh, new slash the Krugman, it's the world's 81st biggest island. It's not very big. It's kind of, I'm not sure if he's ever been there, but I have, and it's kind of semi-arid. It's probably not fair, but it's pretty hot, and it's not like, it's not Kansas or Iowa. It's like, it's pretty hard like, to actually kind of farm stuff there. So that kind of doesn't quite work. And then Krugman said, I think, tourism as well like I said I've been there I've done that it's good but they face competition from Turkey Israel Egypt maybe although you know point taken there but that's maybe not so popular anymore Uh, it's a difficult place in the world to become like the world's best tourist hotspot even if you are you know devaluing your currency 
and make it a lot cheaper to come there. So I thought, yeah, Krugman's point that, you know, it can't get much worse was pretty fair, but as an actual kind of plan, it leaves a lot to be desired. And also, Cyprus imports massive amounts of its energy anyway, and they had a power station blow up last year, so they're going to go on importing their energy. So, yeah, all kinds of wrong stuff with what Krugman said. I I would also imagine that that it would be difficult, especially in a, a small island country like this, um, to have an immediate reorientation of the workforce from people who were trained to be in financial services to switching to tourism or, or agriculture or whatever else, um, that that kind of thing would take a while. So anyway, it's a very sort of unfortunate and certainly heartbreaking situation uh, in Cyprus. Um, before we talk about the Fed, I want to do a quick teaser on something that's happening next week. Joseph, you've been writing a lot about the sovereign debt trial of the century. What's happening in Argentina in the Pari Passu case, and, and what can we look forward to? Yeah, actually, as we write, Argentine bonds are kind of having a really rubbish day in the markets because on Friday, Argentina has to come back to a U.S. court and say how it plans to pay its bond holdouts alongside everyone else who kind of took it to debt restructuring in the last decade. But this is a really long story, but we are coming in here right at the end, basically. Argentina can't, at this point, argue against paying holdouts. It actually has to come back with an offer on how it will pay them. What uh, options does it have? Basically, what Argentina wants to do is just to pay the holdouts what it paid people in the last 2010 restructuring, because Argentina's big argument is we have to have equity between creditors in sovereign restructurings in general, and also in terms of the contract uh, they're kind of arguing over in court. Uh, and the holdouts obviously don't want that. They want to get not just you know their original claim back, they want the post-dated interest, which is actually probably the largest part of their overall claim now. It's about $1.3 billion. And the court had said, right, we're just here to enforce the contract, the holdouts are entitled to that, everything that would make them current from Argentina's original default. And Argentina now has to kind of argue against that. So it will come on Friday and they'll kind of make their kind of submission. The court will either laugh that straight out of the courtroom or they'll say, okay, that's a plan. We want everyone else to kind of talk about it before we make a final decision on you paying these people. And so that's what the next week is going to be about. It's going to be quite fun because, you know, whenever kind of Argentina opens its mouth in front of U.S. judges, something crazy happens. So I'll be watching that next week. Anyway, guys, I've got to run. But All right. Well, oh, sir, thanks for that. For people who are not otherwise occupied on uh, Easter weekend, watch out for that. If not, read Joseph's post next week. Uh, thanks, Joseph. Yeah. Cool. Thanks. See you later, um, All right. One last topic um, because I couldn't resist. David, you're, you're good. <laughs> that to was Joseph me. exiting, by the way. Okay, two seconds. So was that. <laughs> I probably should have planned for this. You're definitely leaving that in the podcast. <laughs> All right, I've that was got... quite a conspicuous exit by Joseph. He's a flair for the dramatic, what? that lad. Slamming the phone down like that. But um, one thing before we go, which I probably should have mentioned, re sure. uh, uh, Dicel Bloom is the um, when you guys said he was stating the obvious. That is to do with the recovery and resolution directive, which. 
you know, is coming into effect in 2018 and or well, the bail-in aspect that will come into effect in 2018. And that kind of is what spooked the market is that it might be moved forward by this kind of, he didn't use a template, but the idea that Cyprus was in some way a model. So I think everyone should be aware of the fact that this thing is out there. <laughs> yeah, good point. Anyway, um, to the Fed. All right. Shall we close out with, uh, with some Fed talk? Yeah, um, only way to go. Last week's uh, FOMC meeting uh, turned out to be a, a little bit more exciting than I think a lot of people anticipated, Many more, maybe more than, than a lot of people realized. Um, so I guess the, the takeaways I had were twofold. One was that Bernanke kind of opened the door towards the possibility of slowing uh, quantitative easing um, you know, maybe even before the end of the year, in response to conditions in, in the labor markets. Um, I've said before that this isn't that big a deal, but it's something that people are paying a lot of attention to. And then more recently, Bill Dudley, the president of the New York Fed, came out and said something really quite similar. So that, that at least is something for us to look forward to. I thought maybe even more interesting and certainly more important was that Bernanke came out and said that he would probably prefer some kind of guidance on this, some kind of numerical guidance on this, uh, similar to the kind of numerical guidance that we have on interest rate policy right now. Um, but the second thing, and, and maybe less technical and more fun to talk about, was that he hinted at the possibility that that he didn't want to be considered uh, for a third term once his chairmanship is over in January of next year. He said he'd spoken to the president about it, and then he, He's he declined to, to say any more. So there's actually a chance that, you know, that Bernanke's going to be gone. Do we have um, front runners for uh, replacements? We do. I, I think right now... No intro, um, right? So. Right now, it's, it's actually Yellen of the, of the San Francisco Fed and the vice chairman, um, or I should say she was previously of the San Francisco Fed, and now she's the vice chairman on the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. She was just over in England, too, I believe. She was. Um, uh, that's right. And, and she's also, I think, somebody who is, who is considered his kind of chief lieutenant. She's been in charge of overseeing the evolution of communications policy at the Fed, and she's, I, I think, somebody who, who shares uh, Bernanke's views on monetary policy. Um, so no dramatic shifts from a, a young Yeah, there won't, be, there won't be any dramatic shifts, and also I, I think he's probably keen to have somebody there. Um, I mean, he's not in charge of replacing himself, of course, but I don't think that either he or you know, the president who is in charge of nominating somebody would want to see somebody there who... who might undo some of some of you know what Bernanke's done over the last few years, or might shift too quickly in a hawkish direction, uh, and that makes a certain amount of sense. That said, I mean th- this kind of thing is very difficult to predict. You know, ten months out, she's certainly the front runner right now, but that doesn't mean that any dark some horses? other candidate won't emerge between now and then. What's that? Any dark horses? Anyone sneaking uh, up on Yellen's tail? I don't know, Stanley Fisher. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be nice. <laughs> I mean, you never know. He's he's a guy with uh, he's he's a guy with uh, world class qualifications. He's respected, you know, pretty much everywhere. Um, sure. And and the only I guess I guess you know backdrop is that he's he was the central bank governor uh, of a different country for. for but that's kind of cool these days. That's kind of it is kind of cool. It's trendy kind of policy. Yeah. It's in vogue. And and he is a U.S. citizen, so I, I think you wouldn't get the kind of, um, I mean, in the U.S., because of the political situation, it would be very difficult to appoint uh, a foreign. A carny. Uh, right, exactly. It would be, be difficult to replicate the carny situation. But I, I think something that Bernanke said that was really quite interesting was that he has spent a lot of time trying to, quote, depersonalize 
the Fed, which is to say that he's trying to get it so that monetary policy isn't necessarily more automated because you still need people to, you know, Make diagnose economic conditions and whatnot, but to take some of the human element out of it. So less, so less that, a cult of personality kind of thing that we might have he, had before. Exactly. He's trying to reduce that. Um, he spent a lot of time reducing that. I'd say that what he did last year went a, you know, went a long way towards doing that. If, and I don't think this is going to happen, but if he were to actually take that last radical step and announce that we now have a nominal GDP target, nominal GDP level target, um, then then I think he will have gone about as far as you can possibly go uh, in the modern era in should, terms of depersonalizing. Should we uh, just suggest automating the Fed, just in Izzy's kind of honor? Alternating I mean, the Fed? Automating the Fed. I mean, ro- Robot Bernanke. Oh, Robot Bernanke. I don't think we're there yet. Uh, the the idea is that eventually we'll get there. I'd rather roboticize the the politicians first, the fiscal policymakers <laughs> in particular, who keep screwing everything up. Yeah, you can vote um, directly into them. It'd be yeah, yeah exactly. It'll but what, what what's interesting is that this is all happening in the context of how to manage the eventual Fed exit, um, assuming that the economy keeps growing and, and, and especially if the recovery accelerates. You've talked about um, this before. I mean, the tools are there. I mean, it, that's not a problem, surely. I really think the tools are there. A lot of people are worried about it. They worry, um, you know, that if um, they worry that eventually the Fed might run at a loss. They worry about the Fed being able to sell these assets to normalize its balance sheet quickly. Running at a loss. What but does that even mean? For, it, it doesn't mean really anything. Yes. It just means that for a few years the Fed would not remit any money back to the Treasury. Um, I, I'm not too worried about this. The Fed can. The Fed now has these new tools that Bernanke put in place that I really do think are going to work. So he can. He can mess with the interest on excess reserves. There are reverse repos with the much bigger uh, list of counterparties than, than existed in the past. That's another Bernanke innovation. They can hold these assets for longer while they use these other tools to standardize policy. And it's really not that much of a problem for the Fed to run a loss for a little while anyways. And people who complain that, well, the Fed won't be remitting money back to the Treasury for a few years. I mean, if you do that net <laughs> of how much money the Fed has remitted to the Treasury in the last few years and will continue to for the next, you know, for the foreseeable next, you know, two or three years at least. You know, it's 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 a complete, you know. Also, you could easily argue that just looking at them as a combined entity is easier anyway. So, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I, I agree. So anyways, I, I'm not too worried about this, but it is very much uh, something that's on, on people's minds. So it's probably something that, that we should talk about. And I suppose effective tightening by the Fed isn't actually going to happen forever. For a very long time, right? I mean, uh, I mean, you mean in terms of uh, in terms of interest rates? Yeah, I mean, it, I mean, you know, that that's tough to say. That the thing is that, in sort of one of, part of the genius of what Bernanke did last year was that by getting people to vote on this new policy, this new kind of uh, shift in the direction of an Evans rule, where you're not going to normalize rates until or you're not going to hike rates until either of these two numeric thresholds are crossed. Um, within the context of a few other things, but even so, mm-hmm. uh, it sort of locks those people in for as long as it takes. I mean, people can change their minds and whatnot, but then it's something that's going to be quite explicitly done. In other words, people are going to recognize, well, if you're saying that we should hike rates now, then you're going back on what you voted in favor of earlier. So I, I think that they probably won't start start you know climbing for some time, certainly not until the unemployment rate is, is significantly uh, meaningfully reduced from where it is now. Um, so in terms of Fed policy and all of these kind of logistical issues, I, I am not concerned at all. 
Um, I'm frankly more concerned in the other direction. I'm concerned that at some point, um, you know, the Hawks might start winning the argument, sure. and the Fed, Fed policy will be will be prematurely tightened. Um, I think there's absolutely no call for that now. So the too much growth argument. <laughs> Good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean. There, there is such a thing, but we're so far away Not from right that. Not right now. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're so far away from that that it's kind of, uh, it's kind of silly to even discuss it. No, it's a glorious thing, way, way out of reach. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Okay. Um, I, I think that's, uh, that's all she wrote. So, to our readers, have a, a long and blessed Easter holiday weekend, and we'll be back on Tuesday, right? Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Have a good holiday, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye, bye. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.